Why Amos, you might ask? What's that have to do with where we've been? Well, for starters, Amos, Mark, they're both four-letter names. But I think we'll find there's more connections than that as we proceed today. So let's start with prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you acknowledging our need, knowing that we are a needy people, a weak people, who find our strength in you. And we ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit. Strengthen me as I speak. Strengthen those who hear these words and let those words be your words. Let them minister to your people's hearts exactly where you want them to be exactly where you want them to land. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It only takes a spark to get a fire going, and soon all those around can warm up and it's glowing. Unless that spark happens to flash within a forest of ancient oak perched high above the river Seine, in the capital city of France. But rather than experiencing warm, cozy feelings from that familiar campfire song, this particular spark set a fire that spread rapidly and totally destroyed the rooftop and central spire of the famed Cathedral Notre Dame as the locals watched in horror. But it wasn't just the French who stood aghast that day, gasping in shock. The Notre Dame Cathedral belonged to the world. But this 850-year-old medieval edifice had become one of mankind's most iconic structures. Not only a symbol of Paris, of France, but of religion. For it was once built for and dedicated to the glory of God. Yet within the span of a single hour, it had suddenly, unexpectedly, become a ruin. And so it is with much in life. One moment, all is well. Our health, our family, our friends... Our jobs, our accomplishments all seem so sturdy and strong. But the next moment, a spark ignites, a fire erupts, and it all comes tumbling down. Ruins. It all comes to ruins. And it is often a ruin of our own making, one that we have brought on ourselves. But, as we'll learn today, From out of such ruins, God does his greatest work. When all is lost, God raises up what is fallen and restores the fortunes of his people. And we shall turn to a little-known prophet in the Old Testament to see that this is so. So please open your Bibles to the book of Amos. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. If you find the book of Ezekiel, you're close. Go to the right a little, you'll find uh, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. 
Amos, that's where we want to be, Amos. If you go past it, if you get to the book of Revelation, you've gone a bit too far. So our text today is from the ninth chapter of Amos, actually the very last five verses of Amos. So you can almost go to the follow-on book of Obadiah because that's where we're going to be, right there, the page before, the very last page of Amos. And here's the word of the Lord for us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now before we can appreciate this glorious text, it's important to get a feel for the context from which it arises. Because these last five verses of this book do not come out of nowhere. They actually, quite literally, arise out of ruins. Ruins that were not yet visible to the original readers, but ruins that nevertheless would become eminently visible to everyone watching very soon. Which brings us to our first point from the book of Amos. Ruined by God. Amos wrote to the nation of Israel back during a time of great peace and prosperity. The kings mentioned in the opening verse of the book were generally considered as effective leaders. They were among the best rulers Israel and Judah had experienced since the glory days of David and Solomon. In general, people were feeling secure in Samaria, the capital of Israel. They were at ease in Zion, the capital of Judah. But as per the oracle of Amos, God saw it differently. God saw a disobedient people, a people so blind to him that they had to be punished for it. They had to be brought to ruin. Now let's take a quick look at some of the verses just to give us a flavor. We're going to go chapter by chapter. I'm going to pick one out, one verse out of each chapter to give you a feel for what it's like for these people, this message for these people who are at ease in Zion. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion. 
and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn in the top of Mount Carmel withers. Chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Chapter 3, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Chapter 4, verse 11. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and a devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Chapter 6, verse 11. For behold... The Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Chapter 7, verse 9. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam, who is their king, with the sword. Chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. The Lord has sworn by his, the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? In chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. A little message of hope in that last phrase. Because a few verses later, things will change. So there you have it. Through 127 verses, Amos persistently warned the people of Israel that ruin was coming. Ruin that God himself would bring upon them. Yet, ruin that they most definitely deserved. But, Surprisingly, inexplicably, the prophecy of Amos does not end there. It's as if after Amos pens verse 10 of chapter 9, 
He notices there's still a little bit of papyrus left to write upon. And God had some very unexpected things to say in that wee little space. So out of the, the ruins comes point number two. Raised by God. Listen to the surprising change in God's tone beginning in verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. You hear that? The same God who promised to bring the house of Israel to ruin earlier has suddenly changed course. Rather than demolish and destroy, God suddenly wants to raise up and rebuild. The same God who promises destruction promises to build something new upon these ruins, and it is something He will do. It is something He will initiate. But just what is this booth of David that God wants to rebuild? Verse 11, booth of David, what's that? Well, at the time of the writing of Amos, there was actually a temple still standing in Jerusalem, and it was the Temple of Solomon, and that's where the animal sacrifices were still happening. But the northern kingdom had broken away from them and weren't really worshiping there anymore. And Amos is speaking to those particular folks instead. They actually worshiped in places like Bethel and Gilgal, and they, they had set up idols. So it's really no wonder God was planning to judge them for that. But it didn't always used to be that way for the northern tribes. They used to be joined with Judah, and there used to be a time when there was no temple, back in the time of King David. We can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 17. During the time of David, the Ark of the Covenant was taken by Philistines, and there's all kinds of neat stories about how God brought his Ark back. What's interesting, though, when he brought it back, David didn't put it where it belonged. He didn't put it back in the tabernacle of Moses. He kind of kept it for himself. In 2 Samuel 6.17, there's a description of what he did with this Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God. The people brought in the Ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside a tent that David had pitched for it. And this tent was located on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Basically, it was in David's backyard. And it was during this brief shining moment in Israel's history that the worship of God just so happens to have been at its purest. If you don't believe me, just read the book of Psalms. Almost the entire book of Psalms were constructed, written during this period with the tent of David. People gathered around, worshiping God in a way like you never see anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's to this tent that Amos is talking about. This is the one ruined place in all of Israel that God wants to rebuild in a startling way. He wants to raise up a place of true worship amongst his people. And that's not all. God not only wants to rebuild it, he wants to rebuild it on a grander scale. Because during David's time, only the people of Israel worshiped God. But look at what verse 12 in our text says. 
that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. All the nations, not Israel alone. All the nations. God wants not just Israel worshiping him, he wants to raise up a house of worship for all the nations. But it even gets better than that. God's promise becomes even grander. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, the text just from a metaphor of construction and rebuilding and repairing to that of building and planting and harvesting. Look what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. In other words, those working God's harvest will not be able to keep up with God's work. No sooner will they have reaped than there will be another crop to plant. No sooner they plant it, there will be reapers ready for the harvest. It's like a cycle an ever-increasing cycle of harvesting, reaping, planting, harvesting again. It's as if the people will clamor for the presence of the Lord. From all corners of the globe, God's harvest of souls will explode. And just as Jesus will say 850 years later, it will be as if the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And that's not all. The latter part of verse 13 paints another entirely different picture for us. Take a look at this one. The last phrase of verse 13 says, The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. What begins as a drip becomes a steady flow and even grows into a mighty torrent as it races downhill. That's the picture. A little drip at the top of the mountain, picks up steam, becomes a flood, flowing through the foothills. In fact, that last phrase, will flow with it, can be translated melted or dissolves. In some translations, you might read that. And that's an accurate translation. It's as if this wine is going to be so plenteous that it's actually going to just level all the foothills, melt them, dissolve them. Now, admittedly, this is highly unusual imagery. It's not often that wine is depicted in such flood-like proportions. In Scripture, a flood is usually depicted as consisting of water, not wine. So when God uses water in a flood, that's usually to destroy, but wine, good things. In fact, Amos... Earlier in Amos, chapter 5, verse 24, Amos uses the idea of water as a means of destruction. In Amos 5, 24, he says, Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But wine, on the other hand, gladdens life. It refreshes. It revives. So rather than a picture of justice, the idea of verse 13 is one of blessing. But once again, this imagery of soaking in a bath of wine may not appeal to you. It may seem a bit strange to those of us who don't even like wine. So think of it this way. When you step into a shower, start to turn that hot water on, the shower head begins to drip. You 
turn the knob a little more, steady stream. Pretty soon a torrent of hot water, hot refreshing water, bathing you, refreshing your senses. That's what God intends by this imagery. It's going to refresh us with wine. So it's a picture of a refreshing flow of sweetness, not destruction. There's a welcome shower of the goodness of God that flows from his presence and soaks everyone in its wake with its sweetness, a presence that God himself has provided, a presence that emanates from the reconstructed ruins of this once fallen booth of David. (laughs) And that's not all. Another verse, verse 14. The difference in verse 14, he extends, God extends his work of rebuilding and replanting to his very people. He invites his people to build with him. Just read it. Three, three different ways the people come into play here. He restores the fortunes of his people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they, the people, shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Number three, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruits. And all of this is God's doing. Still God's doing. We're just participating. That's made very clear if you look back at verse 12, that very last statement of verse 12. Declares the Lord who does this. The Lord who does this. He does all of this. But, admittedly, this sounds a bit too good to be true. How could an ever-increasing harvest and never-ending supply of sustenance happen in this life? Such a place must be heaven. Sounds so much like the new heavens and the new earth, described elsewhere in the Bible, and especially in the last couple chapters of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And as a matter of fact, it is. It is a picture of heaven. I mean, if on your own time, you can go take a look at Revelation 22 and read, and you'll see similar imagery, the way the new Jerusalem and the new earth are described, very similar to this kind of language. But according to the New Testament writers, Amos chapter 9 is already being fulfilled. Surprise? It's already in play. It's not just for the future, it's for now. Let me show you what I mean. Let's eavesdrop upon a speech in the middle of the book of the New Testament book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, we find a gathering of leaders led by the Apostle James, and they're addressing an issue because when the church first began, it was basically a Jewish thing, just Jews. And all of a sudden, God starts saving Gentiles and bringing them into the church. And this is a big problem. They're wondering, what do we do with all these Gentiles? Should they even be here? So the Apostle James stands up and says this. Beginning in Acts 15, verse 13 through 17. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return 
and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild the ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things or does these things. Now, what prophet is James quoting? He's quoting Amos, of course. Amos 9.11. He's quoting straight from our text. And what does James say about our text? First, he assumes that the fallen tent of David has already been rebuilt and restored. And then he goes on to say that just as Amos had written centuries earlier, this restored tent of David would be more of a draw to the Gentiles than to the Jews. In fact, from Amos 15 onward, the church would be considered a gathering of people from all nations, not just Israel. And this was all God's doing. This was his plan all along. So according to Acts, the prophecy of Amos 9 is already in progress. The fallen tent of David has already been raised. How so? In short, it was raised in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was a direct descendant of David. He was the promised Messiah written about in all of the Old Testament prophets, including our friend Amos. And let me show you where Amos talks about Jesus. Turn back to chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. There's a connection between these verses and the ones of our text today. Notice the first words of chapter 8, verse 9. On that day, declares the Lord. First verses of our text. In that day. On that day. In that day. Talking about the same day. But what does he say in chapter 8? On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast in the morning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head, and I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Now this imagery should sound very familiar to those of us who know the Gospel's description of the day that Jesus Christ died. According to Mark chapter 15, which we will get to in a few weeks, he specifically says that darkness covered the whole land from noon to 3 p.m. On that day, the sun will go down at noon. And then those gathered in Jerusalem that day, they were there to celebrate a feast, the Feast of Passover. And yet, on that day, those gathered, especially those following Jesus, they weren't celebrating that feast. They were mourning. They were reduced to mourning. And who were they mourning for? They were mourning for an only Son. The one and only Son of God. being reduced to ruins before their very eyes. But what happened three days later? Well, Amos 9 answers that one. Amos 9, 11, In that day, God raised up the booth of David, 
raised up Jesus that had fallen. And within the weeks that followed, he rebuilt a gathering of people as in the days of old and started drawing those called by his name from every nation. He built a church, established a community of true worshipers. He rebuilt the booth of David. Yes, the prophecy of Amos 9-11-15 is in progress. It is not just a future event. God is raising, repairing, rebuilding, restoring, and ever-expanding His church through Christ even to this day. Even as the culture around us seems to be crumbling, God is at work reaping and harvesting and blessing us with Himself like a never-ending supply of wine. Oh, taste and see just how good He is. Which brings us to our third point. Planted by God. This promise of restoration is not a temporary one. Notice the permanence expressed in the final verse of our text, verse 15. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. What God has planted will never be uprooted. What God has caused to happen cannot be undone, for he has said so. In essence, this raised up tent of David will never be reduced to ruins again, and those who are a part of it are planted there. They shall not be moved. But this begs a question. How can we know that we are a part of this raised up booth of David? How can we know that we are eternally planted on this land given, given by God? Once again, let's let the book of Amos give us some guidance in answering that question. One thing about the book of Amos is there's very few commands in it. It's just God's declaring himself. Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. Most of the chapters, as we've seen, are there. He's talking about, I'm going to ruin the disobedient. These last few verses, he's going to raise up a remnant. And this very last verse, he's going to permanently plant that remnant. But there are a couple commands, two, basically two commands. And they show up in chapter 5. So let's go look at chapter 5, verse 4. And we'll see the first one. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. There it is. Seek me and live. And if you didn't hear it the first time, look down to verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. Same command repeated twice. Seek me and live. Seek me with all your heart, essentially, is what he means. Because if you don't, you'll most certainly come to ruin. And then there's a second commandment, very much like it, down in verse 14 of the same chapter. Look down in verse 14 of chapter 5. Another command. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. And if you didn't hear that one, 
He repeats it in verse 15. Changes the order, but it's the same command. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And in the context, the second command is clearly referring to relationships with other people. Seek their good, not their evil. For this is right. This is just. Those who don't will certainly come to ruin. So there you have it. Two commands. Seek the Lord wholeheartedly and live. Number one. Number two, seek your neighbor's good and live. Don't those commands sound strikingly familiar to the two Jesus taught us back in Mark chapter 12? And we went over a few weeks back. The greatest commandment shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. How do you love the Lord your God? By seeking him with all your heart, by longing for him with all your soul, and by bowing to him with all your strength. How do you love your neighbors yourself? By seeking their good and not their evil. By not looking to trip them up or stumble. By putting their interests ahead of your own. Seek these two things and you will live. Seek these two things and you will be planted forever in the land the Lord your God has given you. Why? Because God has willed it so. Why? Because God has made it so. Now notice the very last phrase in the book of Amos. The very last words of the whole book. After he says, I'll plant you, he ends with this. Says the Lord your God. Now he's said that many times, right? Says the Lord your God. Actually, he hasn't. If you look through the book of Amos, whenever God says, thus says the Lord God, thus says the Lord God, he leaves out one word. He leaves out your. He leaves out that little pronoun, you. Yet, at the very end, the very end of this set of promises, he puts the word your in there. In fact, in the original, it's the very last word of the book. The original would read like this. says, the Lord God of you. Period. So, here we have it. At the very end, this God has made it very personal for us. This last little word is for those of us who seek him. For those of us who seek good. And just as a word of encouragement for those of you who may be doubting, who wonder, am I seeking the Lord enough? Am I seeking the good enough? Am I really in this? Is this really for me? And you're doubting the blessings of God and whether you belong in this rebuilt tent of David? That's one of the reasons he puts us in a church. It's one of the reasons he puts people in our lives. It's one of the reasons we need to have people in our lives because sometimes the people who can see that the most obviously are the ones around us, the ones in our family, the ones in our small groups, the ones in our church. If you have someone in your life who you know is seeking the Lord and you know is seeking the good of others, and yet they're doubting, encourage them. Encourage them. Let them know, this is for you. I see it in you. You are definitely seeking. 
And if you are discouraged, look for that kind of encouragement. And look to encourage those who may be doubting, who may be wondering. Because this is the Lord's doing. Now we've seen throughout the book of Amos that the Lord God is just that. He's the Lord God. Dishing out judgment, bringing ruin upon those who do not seek Him, to those who do not trust Him, to those who do not make Him their own. And such were all of us. But here at the very end, this Lord has become your God by drawing you to his raised-up tent of David, by uniting you to Christ and his church, by planting you in such a way that you will never be uprooted again. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we're so grateful for your work in our lives. You're so grateful for what you have done, what you've decreed to do despite our rebellion, despite our tendency to disobey you. You persist in making us your God. Now let these words minister to your people. Let them rest in, in their hearts through the week as they go forward. Let them strengthen them, strengthen their faith as they go forward, as we go forward together. In your name, amen.